And welcome to this special edition of Colorado Decides. As we look at the race to become Denver's next mayor, I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Joining us for the next 60 minutes are the six candidates who want the job of mayor of Denver. Lisa Calderon, Stephen Sekou Evans, Jamie Gillis, Michael Hancock, our current mayor, Kaylin Rose Heffernan, and Penfield Tate. Everyone, thank you very much for being here. We really appreciate it. We have limited time, so let's get right to it. I'd like to ask each of you a question and ask that you take one minute answering. That's the format we'll use for the rest of the forum. And we'll uh, rotate who answers first in each question so everyone gets a chance to start first. Uh, Lisa, we're going to start with you in this first question. Initiative 300 has arrived as a citizen ballot issue as a response to the current camping ban in Denver. Should the current camping ban remain on the books in Denver? Why or why not? Lisa, your answer, please. No, it shouldn't be allowed on the books. And it actually arisen, had arisen out of the failures of the city's policies of not caring for its homeless folks. So, you know, this, we shouldn't be in this place right now. We shouldn't be coming to a head between housed residents and unhoused residents. And what we have heard over and over again is that this city has failed in its responsibilities. Um, I've been a 20-year service provider. I know what it takes to create programming. Um, the services in our uh, city are not coordinated, um, and we need to scale them up. Uh, we had a mayor who appointed his buddy to the Denver's Road home who ran it into the ground. And so what we need to do is replenish that fund and not take money from Denver Housing Authority and moving it into Denver's Road Home and instead focus on scaling up through a comprehensive housing fund. Sekou, same question. Uh, the camping ban currently in Denver, should it remain on the books? No. No, it shouldn't. Um, first of all, most folks haven't even read the referendum, <clears throat> all right? And it's not one to fix homelessness. So everybody needs to stop lying. All right. Two, you've been feeding fear in it. All right. As if all of a sudden you're going to have squatter camps all over the place. None of that was happening before the ban. So everybody needs to stop lying. All right. And last but not least, uh, all it's really saying is, look, man, I'm not no criminal. So don't treat me like one, because I'm broke, see? Because everybody's going to get an ups and downs in life, and it could be you. So you tell me if you want me to be moving you on, taking the little bit that you got, and then just, whoop, in the middle of a blizzard, good luck, see? Okay. Jamie, uh, you're next up on looking at the Denver's, Denver's camping ban. Yeah. I do believe we should repeal the urban camping ban, but that said, I don't support Initiative 300. I don't think Initiative 300 is the solution. Um, but I think if we repeal the urban camping ban and make a, com a commitment to stop doing the sweeps, which I'm committed to doing, and use resources that we have been deploying for sweeps, for policing, for taking people to Denver Health and then seeing them brought back out into the streets, and we actually start investing in services and moving to a housing-first model, I think we can tackle homelessness, but do it in a way that provides dignity to the people on the streets. So I think there is a short-term housing need that we have that can be addressed through tiny homes, through sanctioned camping sites, through models like San Diego, where they're investing in large tent structures to 
put cots and services, showers and bathrooms, but also coordinating service delivery and investing in that long-term housing first model for Denver. Okay. And uh, Michael, we're going with first names this one, so we're uh, we're being comfortable. Uh, Your thoughts on the current camping ban on the books? You know, actually, let's be factual about where it came from. It happened, it came about during the Occupy Denver movement uh, when there was an attempt to occupy our parks. And the ordinance came uh, as a result of our inability to move people forward, even though out of the parks, even though we had a curfew in place. Um, it also became an important tool as, as someone who has walked the streets during snowstorms, trying to compel people to move indoors for their own good out of the uh, inclement weather. Uh, we needed some. We needed additional tool in the in the tool chest. So I don't support repealing it. Um, I don't support Initiative 300. What I do support, and what we attempt to do, is and let's use the right language. These are not sweeps. The most res- biggest responsibility that a mayor has is the public health and well-being of the people of, their, of, of his or her city. And when we have uh, infestation of rodents, we have needles, we have, uh, and, you know, we have uh, feces and urine, and, and just really unsafe, unsanitary, unhealthy conditions on the streets, it's important that we uh, go in and clean them up. And our public health officer directs those uh, decisions uh, once we uh, identify those challenges and threats. And that's where the cleanups occur. They're not considered, we don't consider them sweets. We consider them cleanups. Kaylin, same question. Your feelings on the current campaign ban in Denver? Uh, yeah, I fully support and endorse Initiative 300. Uh, I've been closely connected to the groups and the homeless folks that have written this bill, who have pushed this forward. Uh, I was a part of the Occupy encampment that was actually feeding houseless folks, and that was every time that the riot cops came out. Um, We are criminalizing our homeless friends and families. I have a number of students right now that are homeless. Uh, Shelters are typically inaccessible for many people with disabilities. Most people forced into homelessness have a disability of some sort. Uh, To me, this is a basic human right that's being violated. It's illegal to sleep to rest and to eat in public. Um, and unfortunately, the only one of those who are being cleaned up are the undesirables or the unwanted. So yes, I fully support 300 and would repeal the camping ban day one. Penfield, wrap it up for us. Your thoughts on the current camping ban. Sure. Dominic, as mayor, I will work to repeal the camping ban um, and I will repeal the sweeps. And let's be clear, they are sweeps because once the homeless are moved and the sidewalk and everything is cleaned up, they're not allowed to go right back there. They're moved on. So they are swept off the, the street. And it reflects a failure of, of city leadership and, and comprehensive policy. Uh, also, we need to understand that we've been sued as a result of these sweeps in, in camping bans and had to settle a lawsuit. That being said, 300 is not the answer either. We need a comprehensive solution. And while it is right that we need affordable and attainable housing, since up to 60% of the homeless work full-time or have a job, affordability is their issue, we need to act more immediately. So in the first 100 days of my administration, we'll accelerate the process to permit temporary and permanent shelter space because there are providers out there who say they can provide more shelter space. We'll approach DPS and other land uh, property owners about acquiring more property to expand the shelter network. And we'll look to establish safe, secure outdoor encampments. Los Angeles has just tried something like this with some success with services, latrines, bathrooms, um, showers, and other facilities, and uh, mental health and, and health and welfare services also. 
Let's get to our next question. Siku, you're going to be starting in this one. Denver is one of the fastest growing cities in the country. What's the key to keeping up with the infrastructure needs of a city outgrowing its road seemingly more by the day? Well, there's a couple of things. We have done a, uh, well, Michael's done a wonderful job in promoting the growth and attracting the necessary labor, skilled folks, technical folks, computer folks to come here. Because you're going to need all that with a growing population. You're going to have to, you have to figure out a way how to merge all that in smoothly so there's not a lot of disruption in terms of traffic and noise and you're digging up I-70 and all that fumes and dust that's toxic is going in and kids are getting sick. You know, so you got to start looking at a process. How do you do this? Now, what has happened is this. It's part of the capitalist system. This thing that took off, it's gone. It's gone, Jack. You know what I'm saying? And you got to rein it back in without creating disruption or recession. All right? Because you just can't stop it. All right? Because then the people who are here are going to be impacted. Uh, like you're building people, contractors, all right? All of a sudden, ain't no work done. So you have to figure out a way how to merge this in smoothly, but understand it's a process. It didn't happen overnight. It's going to take a minute to straighten this thing out. But what people have to do is relax, Jack, and stop feeding fear. Because it ain't all of that. It really ain't. Jamie, you're up next. Uh, addressing the infrastructure needs of a growing city. How do we do it? I think this is the number one challenge we face because as we have seen this exponential growth, we unfortunately haven't invested in all the infrastructure. And we're talking about roads and mobility and transit, but also the actual water, sewer, infrastructure, utility infrastructure that we need to support the growth. From a transportation side, uh, I think this comes down to really focusing on investing in transit. And I know the mayor has recently announced the creation of a Department of Transportation, which I think is a move in the right direction. But we still don't have answers on when, where, what, and how we're going to fund that transit and how quickly we can get it in place. Because unfortunately, we're behind on on that investment, and it's going to be expensive, and it's going to take time to do. But I think investing on a connecting connected transit network that creates that last-mile connection and builds off the regional system is coordinated with the regional transit system and moves people into neighborhoods is the only way we're going to get cars off the street. I think we also have to look at how we invest in the multimodal component to that, good bike infrastructure, good pedestrian infrastructure, making sure we provide options to people to get out of their car. Michael, uh, we're looking at infrastructure needs of a growing city. How do we do it? Massively growing city, Dominic. And quite frankly, uh, the city of Denver has really started to move forward uh, over the last three years to address the growth that we've seen that was pretty steady. 110,000 people moved to the city in 10 years. Our housing fund was established to address the the, the need for more production around housing. Uh, We're not done. We're going to remain in the laboratory. Even though we've already built 6,500 housing units, we have almost close to 3,000 under construction right now. And we're going to be investing over $300 million over the next three to five years in affordable and attainable housing. The mobility strategy of my mobility action plan will invest about $2 billion. We've already made our first down payment of $400 million to begin the, or begin, but to continue our multimodalism of our streets, getting more complete streets, and also trying to drive down the single occupied vehicle uh, number in the city. And we're also going after federal and state dollars with regards to that. And then it's also to make sure that we we go forward with the update of our our, uh, comprehensive 2020 plan. 
We have a we had a plan in place called Blueprint Denver. It wasn't matched up with the growth that we've seen because it was written in 2002. Uh, but the reality is we updated it uh, over the last three years, and that's why we're working with City Council to approve our new strategy to address the growth in Denver. Caitlin, how would you address the growing infrastructure needs of Denver? Yeah, well, growth is a normal cycle of of the human race. Um, what common folks and people who live in Denver are seeing is that this exponential growth is being accommodated and prioritized to people uh, in the middle and upper class, which is displacing uh, people of color, people with disabilities, um, people without income. Uh, there are right now enough empty apartments in this growing city to house our entire state's homeless population. So I don't think the problem is growth. I think the problem is how we're prioritizing our infrastructure and our housing and our economy. Um, and the way that we are growing is seemingly repeating the cycle of colonization and how this city was uh, stolen and taken from in the beginning. Okay. Ben, how do we address the infrastructure needs of a growing city like Denver? You know, Dominic, this issue is probably the number one thing I hear from people as I walk the neighborhoods uh, of the city during the campaign. People complain in neighborhood after neighborhood that development is being done to them, not for and with them. That's partly why the Neighborhood Organization, Inc., has come out and opposed moving forward with Denver Right and asked City Council and Michael not to move forward with that until after the election because the feeling is that the planning for the future of Denver has not been done taking into consideration the needs of people in neighborhoods. And as mayor, I'll start there. Secondly, we do need to look at infrastructure because we've grown so haphazardly without a plan. Development has driven us. Transit and transportation are huge issues. Um, I've advocated for a number of different policies on my website. I would look at creating circulator buses within neighborhoods and between neighborhoods to try to reduce the number of short trips people take. Um, I would look at changing how we use streets. We need to reevaluate the one-way grid look at timing on stoplights, and look to technology to help us. Also, with the new department um, that Public Works was just renamed Transportation, I had something else in mind when I advocated for a new department, but I'll make it work. Lisa, you last up on addressing the infrastructure needs of a growing city like Denver. Well, first of all, I would separate the planning from uh, the, the planning department from the development uh, Right now, our development is pushing our planning. It should be the other way around. We should plan a city. I'm a proponent of community-led development, which means that our planning should happen in our neighborhoods, not pushed out onto us from City Hall. Um, you know, gentrification is in different stages across this city, and so we need to conduct assessments, uh, health impact assessments about what the particular communities need for their infrastructure. You know, Denver, during our times of recession, took a different path than, for example, Portland. Um, when they had an economic downturn, what they decided to do was invest in their infrastructure, preserve their public spaces, and um, I believe it's time to do that. We should not be focusing on building an aerotropolis out to DIA or thinking that um, the Rocky Mountain Arsenal is park space. We need to have that and the core of our communities. So this is our next question. I think what we'll find is that we have a lot of things that are related and a lot of, I think you're going to see a lot of segues in the previous answers to this next question. Jamie, we'll start with you on this one. 
Rhino and the Elyria Swansea neighborhoods represent the best and best of times and worst of times for Denver. How does success become a more even-handed opportunity throughout the city of Denver? Right. It, it all comes back to how you manage that process. So what what I personally saw working for the Rhino Art District in that area was coming into a time in 2014-2015 when we were seeing land prices double, triple, literally overnight with the announcement of the coming in of the rail station and uh, the corridor of opportunity. And those land prices and that land grab that was happening was massively impacting all of the neighborhoods and communities around. The only way to truly control that, having tried from the community side to push forward development requirements around affordable housing, around design, around investing in the homeless community, the only real way to get that done is with the support of the city. The city controls the levers on investment and needs to be thoughtful about when you open up zoning and those types of opportunities for development, how do you help people who are going to be impacted stay in place, have the resources, the access to transit, the access to markets, to things that they need to thrive and survive while the city grows upward. Uh, Michael, if you drive through Rhino and then Swansea, you feel like you're driving to two different worlds, but to the same city. How does opportunity become more even-handed? You know, it has to, does have to be intentional. Dominic, let me, let me address a couple of words that have been used. Haphazard development. The reality is in 2002, the city passed Blueprint Denver. Um, by the way, the same kind of reaction occurred. Don't pass it. Let the new council take it. Um, it's went too fast. And the reality that 80%, most of the development that's occurred, even in response to this growth, have gone to those areas of change that are identified by Blueprint Denver. The other thing that was talked about were neighborhood plans. When I became mayor, only 30% of the city, 30% of the communities in Denver had neighborhood plans. We are very close to completing neighborhood plans in 100% of the city, uh, neighborhoods in the city as a part of the next comp plan 2040 going forward. The intentionality comes from the administration, city council, and developers working together to, and the community going in and saying, let's invest in neighborhoods that have been perennially overlooked and neglected. Sun Valley, Westwood, uh, Glowville area, Swansea are neighborhoods that were overlooked. And we, what we have done, and you'll see from our, our investments, have invested heavily in these neighborhoods. Now we need to make sure we protect the residents who are there. That's what our next effort is all about. Caitlin, the question is about uh, even-handed opportunity threat Denver. Your thoughts? Yeah, uh, I actually just got here from a class that I was teaching in Swansea. Um, the GES neighborhood is the most polluted zip code in the country. Um, and now with this I-70 expansion that the community fought very hard against, um, the, the quality of life it will decrease. Um, but it's all, always for communities of color and communities with low income. Um, I'm also very connected to the arts community. Um, as an artist, I've watched my very close friends be forced into homelessness um, who are no longer here with us uh, because they were priced out of and kicked out by the city in the Rhino Arts District, which we still call the East Side. Um, and the communities of color have been forced and displaced um, out of those communities. I think also it's easy to remove the violence from the cycles that we're seeing and more homeless people are dying than ever and the artists reflect that, that population very closely. Uh, Penn, the, the stark differences between a couple neighborhoods in Denver and what do we do about it? 
You know, and Dominic, it's not a stark difference between a couple of neighborhoods. If if some of the viewers saw, I think it was the article in Denver, right, you saw the whole um, graphic of the inverted L, where neighborhoods in the north and in the far west are where poverty is concentrated, there's no green space, there are no services, and it's due to a lack of planning and intentionality. And when I talked about haphazard growth, it's because there weren't plans in place to develop those neighborhoods that per- were predominantly lower income and neighborhoods of color. So it's not just the disparity between Rhino and Globeville. There's disparity in a number of communities around the city. You have to be intentional. The city of Denver will never be better than the least fortunate neighborhood or community. And so all of them have to be lifted up. And there are times when, as mayor, you have to invest more time and attention to certain neighborhoods so you bring up the quality and standard of living there so that there are sidewalks, so that the roads are in good repair, so that there are rec centers, so that there are parks, so that there are other amenities. And that hasn't happened during the eight years of this administration. And remember, Michael was on city council for eight years before that. So the the the, the absence of planning and intentionality expands expands his entire service in city government. Lisa, your thoughts at uh, providing even-handed opportunity for throughout Denver? Denver is increasingly becoming a city of haves and have-nots, of those with access and without access. So if you have access to the mayor through the, his circle of lawyer, lobbyist, developers, and Colorado Public Radio did an excellent expose on that recently, then you're prospering in Denver. But if you're like the rest of us, strugg- struggling working families, we've been left out of the prosperity of Denver, and that's what I'm fighting for. Um, you know, this um, NEST initiative is... is uh, interesting because it's it's supposed to be the city's response to gentrification. Um, They've had a study for three years telling them what they needed to do and yet just as of the end of last year launched this NEST initiative that has virtually uh, no resources and is understaffed. Um, And that's just the latest in terms of inept, uh, failing kinds of initiatives. It's too little, too late, and we need, um, rather than giving us a bunch of initiatives in re-election season, uh, we need new leadership. Sekou, wrap it up for us. Your thoughts about even-handed opportunity throughout the city of Denver. Okay. Listen, for the last uh, 12 years, I've been going down to city council, going to general meetings, subcommittee meetings, Made over 500 presentations to city council, both in the subcommittee and general legislative. All right. Now, while all this is going down, right, ain't none of these folks down there. All right. Because I'm trying to figure out how this thing is working, right? So, what's really happening here in terms of this disequity thing, the game is fixed down there and it's corrupt. They're making decisions about things on television when the real conversations are happening off of television in the bar, making decisions, drink it. Everybody down there drink a bunch of dickheads, you know what I'm saying, trying to do marijuana, but, you know, they done messed it up, but that's another story. So what has to happen is this. You got to come in, and you got to understand, Michael has the position of power. City council is weak, so they're going to do whatever Michael will sign off on, because he don't sign off on it, then you got to go through a whole process. And if you watch the votes down there, right, you get a lot of 13 zips 
All right, 13 for none against, which means that everybody down there is playing a different game. All right, and it's corrupt. You can't get 13 zip out of 90% of the conversations down there unless you've had a conversation beforehand and then you just sit up here and play games with the people. Okay. Let's move on to our next question. Uh, Michael, you're going to be first up on this question. Okay. There's been a lot of conversation about affordable housing in Denver, mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's a relative issue. What's affordable to one is not to another. Let's take it to a mid-range affordability, not housing for uh, maybe the poverty-stricken and not a luxury apartment. What's the solution to adding more inventory in that mid-range availability in Denver? Dominic, uh, great question. And I'll tell you what, the reality is that that's where our greatest need is. And, you know, you call it workforce housing, you call it attainable housing. These are people who are teachers, or are, are, are nurses, you know, in some cases right out of college, first year um, in a corporation or in our rec centers, quite frankly. Um, the reality is that this is where we have our greatest need. People are working every day who struggle, who are overburdened with rents and, and need and want to move toward mortgages. It has to be, I believe, a public-private partnership. And just as we went after the affordable housing side of this, the zero to 60% AMI, we need to attack the 61% to 120% AMI in the same way. And so what we're doing now is we're having conversations with public and private partners who will help us to amass a, a pool of resources, maybe anywhere from 500 to $600 million, that will allow us to partner with the workforce housing need uh, residents of Denver, um, helping with down payment assistance, how we leverage some of our bonding capacity in that sense, um, in terms of our mortgage assistance bonds, um, but helping to build as well as to help people get into the housing. Down payment is the largest hurdle for those who are trying to buy housing in that range, and we should be able to help them, and that's what this pool of, these pool of dollars will help, uh, help us to accomplish. Caitlin, we're talking about affordable housing, but that mid-range availability, not uh, just for folks uh, close to poverty, not luxury apartments, that mid-range, how do we do it? Well, because of the influx of the upper middle class, um, it has raised the cost of living for everybody. Uh, the average median income does not reflect uh, the average median income for working class uh, folks that were here before this um, boom. Uh, so I would prioritize um, housing for 30% um, and under because the AMI, the average median income, does not reflect uh, the general working class uh, community. And so what we're seeing is uh, Denver's uh, working class people are getting jobs, sometimes two to three jobs, in order to live, and then they have to be... Uh, relocated and displaced into the suburbs so the the whole average median income that our affordable housing is placed under is actually been rigged to keep many of us everyday people out. Penn, what's the key to mid-range affordable housing in the city of Denver? You know, Dominic, this is a key issue. And, and the, the way we've developed and the gentrification and displacement has just accelerated this problem. I met a teacher at, at Bill Roberts um, School who it talked about how much she enjoyed teaching there, but she lives in Jefferson County because she can't afford to buy a house in Stapleton where she teaches. What we have to do is, number one, change existing city policy. If you look at the website, I think it's called Denied by Denver, you'll read about uh, an affordable, attainable housing developer who has basically lost the market because Denver 
change the qualification standards so that people ironically need a larger down payment to qualify for Denver's program so fewer and fewer people are able to qualify for this attainable housing stock. So number one, you exercise discretion where you can and change those policies. Two, you go to the for-profit and non-profit attainable housing developers in this city and tell them with inclusionary zoning money, with linkage fee money, with land banking, with the city putting land in deals, you want to partner with them to develop affordable housing, attainable housing throughout the city. We should not concentrate it in one neighborhood, but um, that's, that's where we have to start with this. Lisa, we're talking about affordable housing, but that mid-range sweet spot that's difficult to get to, how do we get there in Denver? I'm in that mid-range. Uh, we are losing the ability to transition through our life stages. So um, initially you could start off with something small and work your way up, or you can downstep as your children, as mine have, uh, grown up. And, and yet what we're finding increasingly is that people feel stuck. So we are um, not having that uh, missing middle need uh, fit either. What I propose is a housing department. I proposed it before the, um, Mayor Hancock came out in his re-election bid uh, to say that. Um, and I'm being advised by um, his former um, head of housing, uh, Eric Sullivan, who has endorsed my campaign. Um, essentially, what we would do is create a comprehensive housing fund. This city had two reports that cost tens of thousands of dollars that basically advised the city years ago to create a housing department and failed to do so. We have $9 million sitting in our affordable housing fund right now that is not being used for affordable housing. So we need a sense of urgency um, across the spectrum of our housing. Thank you, affordable housing, but that mid-range level, how do we do it? Okay, look. Folks are making this thing real complex, and it's not. What you have right now is you've got 20,000 units already built of luxury apartments that are not occupied. Bang. So we sit down with all the folks that have built this stuff that they ain't selling because it's costing them money. You know what I'm saying? So they ain't bought this to hold on to it. They want to get rid of it. So here we go. You got to cut the deal, man. You know what I'm saying? Bring the folks in. I already got 20,000 units. Bring the folks in and say, okay, now look, it's going to be a win-win thing, all right? You're not going to get what you want, but you're going to give me what I got to get, all right? And I'm going to pay you a reasonable price for this stuff, just like the banks packaged it up during the recession and they sold those blocks of houses to developers and whatnot. Now you can cut the deal, all right, because they're starving now and they see the end coming because it's almost done because you're running out of land, all right? So you bring them in and say, okay, let's cut a deal, all right? I'm going to give you X amount of dollars for this, right? Then for the people who are in the middle range, right, what we're going to do is give you down payment assistance and mortgage assistance to get in. Then the people down here who's already in got houses, right, to want to move up and can't afford it, right, you move them up. And then you take the poor people, put them in the houses that the folks just left, and you rotate and move this thing around. But what we need is a priority. We need housing need that people own so you put a dent in the poverty and the boat stops sinking. You don't own no land, you're in trouble. And you can't pass on rent. you got to pass on wealth, and wealth comes through ownership. Okay. Let's move forward. Jamie, uh, your last up answering this question, the mid-range affordability, affordable housing in Denver. I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about different levels of need of affordable housing. I think affordable housing used to be considered somebody else's issue. It was was a low-income issue, and we're looking now at disparity across the board, needing $70,000 plus to be able to afford a home and live in Denver. I think it starts with recognizing that 
there's not one strategy for all affordable. We need to, as a city, break up and understand what tools and what resources we have available for each. The mid-level housing is expensive, is hard to do, because oftentimes there are tax credit availability for those types of housing. Those go to the lower income housing. And the cost of land is so high here. So working with developers, the number one thing I hear is how long it takes to get through permitting. A year plus, and time is money, and they're sitting on expensive land. I think it's going to take a collaborative of nonprofit partnerships. 95% of our affordable housing is built as nonprofit. For-profit partnerships with for-profit developers who will build the for-sale product. And then also understanding that this is a regional issue. And I think we have an opportunity to work with regional municipalities to truly look at how we make a dent in the affordable housing crisis. Kaylin, you're first this next question. Uh, the mayor sends the budget to the council. The city budget is a big priority. What, is, what parts of the city budget do you feel need the most attention? Well, right now, most of the city budget is being spent on public safety. Um, I think that this housing first, first we have to declare housing a human right. Um, and because we are sitting on so many vacant areas and vacant apartments, I don't think it'll cost as much um, as what I would like to see more of the budget go to is our public transportation. Uh, I ride the bus every day and it is the means of access for a lot of us communities that don't have access to Lyft and Uber, that can't afford taxis, uh, and for me it's not an option at all. So uh, in order to get to work, um, we need to obviously increase the wages so that we're not stuck in this housing crisis, but in order to get to our jobs, we need affordable, accessible public transportation, and I would like to see public transportation accessible and free for everybody, and I think that's going to take some more funding and prioritizing. Pam, we're talking about the city budget. What do you feel needs the most attention? You know, and, and this is uh, an important exercise. I, I spent two years on the state joint budget committee um, writing and managing multi-billion dollar budgets far larger than what Denver's got, and, and you find that how you allocate your resources reflects your priorities and your commitment. So number one, we need to immediately put some resources into helping lift people off the street before winter comes, and as mayor, that'll be my first priority. Secondly, to go back to your prior question, we need to focus on attainable housing, and we need to look at how we incentivize and help promote the development of that attainable housing sooner rather than later, because ultimately that's the key to keeping homeless people off the street since 60% of them work. Third, we do need to invest in alternatives to the transportation network we have now. RTD is regional. We need Denver-centric solutions to move people around, and particularly in um, lower socioeconomic income neighborhoods, because that's where the challenge is graded. They have to move around of necessity. We need to address some of those needs. And finally, we need to invest money in preserving parkland, green space, and open space, and creating more in communities that don't have that now. Lisa, we're talking about the city budget. What do you feel needs the most attention? Well, out of our about $1.5 billion budget and 40% of that being public safety, I would certainly look at, uh, well, 
So first of all, I think it reflects kind of the values of the city when we are investing more in arresting and incarcerating people than we are preventing them from going to jail in the first place. Um, I would scale down our public safety department. It has grown increasingly um, over the years under this administration with more lawyers and administrators making six-figure salaries. We should put that, those into direct services um, to support officers who are dealing increasingly with also a mental health crisis. Um, I would also um, shift resources to our um, old jail and turn that into a mental health facility for incarcerated folks who are vulnerable in the general population. Um, I would also look at cost efficiencies. Um, the renovations going on at the county jail right now are hundreds of thousands of dollars over budget, but city council just keeps rubber stamping uh, for the sheriff's department. So what we need to do is get a handle on our inefficiencies, and I would also scale up sustainability. We're spending less than $400,000 a year in our budget. If we're really serious about um, reducing our uh, carbon emissions, then that uh, needs to vastly be scaled up, and I would also appoint a uh, uh, cabinet-level position for the office's sustainability. Seiki, what, what part of the city budget do you feel needs the most attention? First of all, <clears throat> you can't talk about the budget if you ain't never read it. That's number one. Two, I'm a trained accountant and an auditor and tax expert. Okay? So when they was having the budget meetings, all right, and this is just to be fair, there was numbers, and then there was expectations of how you spend the money, hours, manpower, da 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 So one of the things we had to do was this. We had to look at this thing and say, okay, man, what are we getting out of this? Because people need to stop lying. It's in personnel. That's where most of the money's at, okay? And it's been eaten up administratively with all these people at the top end, like Lisa was saying, all right? Now... You got to look at this thing and say, all right, man, maybe what we need to do, because I'm a shipbuilder, all right, and we got a hole in the bottom of the boat. We don't fix the bottom, the rest of the boat going to sink, middle and the top, so we got to do some practicality here. So when the budget was written, these folks wasn't there. It's a 700-page thing. They ain't read it. Michael ain't even read the budget because he don't know nothing about no budgets. You know what I'm saying? And, he don't, and Penn does budget, but he don't know nothing about auditing no budgets got to me. see how the money was finish. spent. So everybody needs to stop lying, all right, because what's happening here is this, all right? You got to read the finish. budget. You got to be able to do the budget analysis, and then okay. you got to compare that with the outcome that you're looking for. And we're short now because the cops need more money. All right. We're, gonna be we're telling time. Michael that we up. need more cops because all these people yeah. coming in for public safety. Let's all right. Rolling. So people who are talking about just too much this and too much that. Look, you need to talk about paying attention here because with all these people coming in, we got to keep going. Guess what? You know what I'm saying? You got to have a way to have some public safety so that poor people going, are protected, so property is protected, and folks okay. don't have no health to skelter, wild, wild west thing, and shootouts and things, and people are getting blessed and things, especially poor people, because when we, we got crime on. going on, we it's never on. get investigated. We got to move on. Jamie, we're getting back to the city budget. What do you feel is the part that needs the most attention? I think there are efficiencies across the board, and one thing I'll say going into this is I think we also have to be cognizant that there are signs of a recession coming coming ahead. We have an extraordinary amount of debt that we have passed as uh, the citizens of Denver for some of these big projects that we are responsible for paying. And we have a lot of big things that have to be invested in. Transit, homelessness, uh, the affordable housing component, the sustainability and environmental pieces. So 
as I look at the budget, I think we have to look for efficiencies. Um, I certainly agree that there is administration top heaviness that needs to be addressed. But I also think we have to look at how we're doing our contracts and where our money is flowing to. We know, for example, that in the convention center contract, uh, Trammell Crow was given an almost $10 million contract just to manage the other contractors. The last time the convention center was renovated, it was done in-house with employees and staff that were part of Denver. I think there's efficiencies to be found. We need more transparency in the budget. And frankly, I need to think we need to move to participatory budgeting process that allows the community to input on priorities each year. Michael, wrap it up for us. What's uh, the city budget part that you think needs most attention? Uh, you know, Dominic, the city budget, the overall budget is $2.4 billion, $1.5 roughly for the general fund, uh, 400 and some odd million dollars for the airport, $550 million for special revenue funds, which, might, which includes, you know, for example, our golf enterprise as well as our wastewater. That $1.4 million, uh, billion dollars is really what allows us to keep the people of Denver health and safety uh, safe uh, and to allow for the operations of the city to go forward. As Sekou pointed out, seven out of every $10 or seven, seven cents of every dollar goes into personnel. Um, what we have done in order to create greater efficiencies in the city of Denver, I brought an initiative in called Peak Performance, where we train now over half of our workforce in uh, uh, continuous process improvement. Those employees have helped save the people of Denver $30 million in the last eight years. We have rolled those dollars back into city processes. We have created lean processes and efficient size, uh, or greater efficiency, excuse me, in departments throughout the city of Denver. We're not done yet, but now I have an in-house consultant. It's interesting that Jamie talks about efficiencies around project management, but yet she says do it in-house, which means you have permanent employees who are constantly on the payroll. It's a lot less expensive to do contract pro uh, project management for one-time projects that don't last in perpetuity. Penn, you're going to start on this next question. Uh, the mayor appoints the uh, manager of safety. What skills does a successful manager of safety bring to the table? You know, I think that that's an important question because what we've seen, quite frankly, is a real problem in the Department of Safety. And we've talked about this before, you know, the, the, the mayor's situation with his texting and the need to spend taxpayer dollars to settle those claims and those lawsuits. Um, the fact that the police department has had another claim of sexual harassment by the, one of the highest-ranking women in the department, and now the fire department, we've got a lieutenant who's been found to have put cameras in the rooms of some of the female officers. We have a huge problem in the Department of Safety. What it tells me is is you need to start first with a person who's going to respect the rights of all employees in the department and be responsive to the directives, my directives as mayor, that we treat people well first. Secondly, we have to have someone who is committed to creating inclusion and diversity in the Department of Safety. If you want an effective police department, if you want community policing, which I advocate for and support, the department has to reflect the community it is policing. So we need more people of color. We need more women in the police department. And women are only 11% of the police department. They're only 5% of the fire department. So we need to improve our um, recruitment efforts to get a more diverse force. And that's what I'll be looking for in my manager of safety. Uh, Lisa, if elected mayor, you'll hire a manager of safety. What skills should they bring to the table? Well, firstly, one that is 
highly qualified. Our current manager of safety, Troy Riggs, had eight jobs in nine years before this mayor appointed him without any community input. In the past, we've had community input. Um, the same thing with the sheriff. The sheriff was essentially a third-string pick, had never been a sheriff before, and yet he is supposedly running our jails but is simply a figurehead because it is actually our manager of safety who runs our jails who reports directly to the mayor. So we need to have, one, more community input on who gets those positions. Uh, the other is I agree, agree with Penn's assessment that we have a problem of gender in our safety departments. Um, all of the heads of our safety departments are men. Uh, I actually had a victim of sexual assault be hung up on by a deputy uh, uh, safety manager when he didn't like um, her critique of him. We need to really um, overhaul what we're doing in uh, our safety department. And we also know that women in promotions has declined uh, under uh, this mayor's leadership. So, you know, I would be looking to uh, replace uh, those seats. Siku, your one-minute answer on the successful <laughs> skill sets of a safety manager. <laughs> I thought a reminder was probably in order. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. All right, all right, here we go. Listen, you've got to incentivize the police departments and the sheriffs. Now, we got this thing all twisted. We got million-dollar athletes, but where's my million-dollar cop? Where's my million-dollar sheriff? See? So you have to incentivize it and make it fair. Now, if I, get a, if I have a thing that, hey, whoever does this community service best, you know what I'm saying, and I'm going to let you guys decide who do it best, right, then I'm going to give the best guy a million dollars because he's going to represent how you do this. Now, because you're incentivizing corporations. So it doesn't make no sense to have no million-dollar basketball player, you know what I'm saying, and then you ain't got no million-dollar policeman. All right, so you got to use the tools that are available for you to motivate and change the paradigm in thinking and value the resources that you got there. So I'm going to find me a million-dollar cop. You know what I'm saying? I want everybody to work on being the best policeman the world has ever seen, and we're going to thank you for it and set a new standard. All right? So that's number okay. one on that. Then when we go, because my minute's up, because I see you moving like <laughs> yep. Quincy Jones. That's you know, right. You know, up, up, that's it. I'll get up. with y'all back y'all later. Okay. Check in and... Uh, We'll, we'll continue on. With Thank you. Said. Jamie, you're up next on the skill set a successful safety manager should bring to the table. Well, I think the safety manager has to have experience with the jails, with policing, and has to be somebody who's proven to actually be able to implement um, positive changes going forward. But I think we also have to remember the, the you know, manager of safety, the sheriff, the uh, chief of police, the office of the independent monitor, which all are intertwined in terms of our public safety, all generally report to the mayor's office. So the mayor's office has a lot of control over that. And whether the mayor's office is controlling the decisions, which it seems to be happening quite a bit right now, or working with those professionals who understand the reforms and the changes and the improvements that need to be made in the system is really a question of how the mayor runs um, and works with those professionals that he or she appoints. I think that's the starting point. But I think we need somebody there that understands the importance of getting people to a better system, decreasing uh, the issues that we have with racial profiling, but also looking at things like how are we decreasing the amount of people going into our jails. We know about 25% belong elsewhere. Who can, who can lead that effort to make sure that actually happens? 
Uh, Michael, you've hired a few safety managers. What do you feel are the successful skill sets they bring to the table? You know, this is one of the most challenging positions to fill because it's a hybrid position that doesn't exist very, uh, in very many places around the country. And this, this, this Trumpian attempt to slander people's uh, skill sets and capacity to do the job is really disappointing. It's unfortunate. These are men and women who've dedicated their lives to serving our public. Uh, and so in hiring a public safety uh, director, I'm looking for someone who, can, who has administrative strengths, the ability to lead a team, um, who has some uh, background familiarity with public safety. Um, who doesn't mind making very difficult, tough decisions because they are also responsible for disciplining law enforcement uh, and public safety officials. And so there is a, a special, unique quality you're looking for. We've had some honorable people, uh, former uh, Supreme Court Justice Alex uh, Martinez, Stephanie O'Malley, and now Troy Riggs, who's wrote out exactly what I asked him to do in terms of a value alignment, in terms of the opportunity index. What are those set of indicators that tell us that a neighborhood and the individuals in those neighborhoods are more prone to be involved in crime, be victims of crime, and how do we begin to reverse that before we have to move in with law enforcement? Kaylin, if elected mayor, you'll hire a safety manager. What will you be looking for? Yeah, uh, I agree with Penfield and Lisa that we need better representation, uh, that we need more accountability and public oversight as well as independent oversight. Um, I hope that any public safety manager would come in under my administration from a restorative justice lens. Uh, I would like to overhaul the entire public safety department to be coming from a trauma-informed crisis response uh, lens so that we could decrease the incarceration rates which disproportionately affect uh, my youth of color, people with disabilities, people living under poverty, and it has um, historically been a way to keep those in poverty in poverty. Um, so I would like to reformat our entire uh, public safety to be from a crisis response, trauma-informed lens that provides services and stop incarcerating we're getting close to our closing statements, so I'm going to ask everybody for a 30-second answer on this next question. I'm also going to a little bit of a preview there, Seiko. just want to let you know. Uh, I call this my David Copel question. It's related to what we just uh, finished. Should the uh, sheriff of Denver be elected? Lisa, we're going to start with you. Your 30-second answer. Yes, uh, the sheriff, he or she, should be elected. And I worked in the, uh, in the uh, Denver jails for eight years talk with deputies even now, and um, they want an elected sheriff, and I support that. I think our, uh, we work best when we have checks and balances, but I would also strengthen the independent monitor's office, something that this mayor has uh, chipped back on in terms of oversight. Um, and I, I think it's important that we have a strong sheriff that uh, deputies can look up to, and, and morale is terrible right now. Okay. Seku, should we elect the sheriff of Denver? Absolutely not, man. I mean, come on, for real? Listen, now you're going to politicize the police. Now you're going to politicize the jail. All right? Why would you do that? You know what I'm saying? You got enough madness going on in already. So what we need to do is open the process up and let the community select the person that they want and then make that part of the consideration of who you hire. So that even if you don't get the one that you want, we'll make him the deputy. The community has one. 
We got one. Now we got a deal here going on where everybody feels okay. included. All right, but you got to include the people in it, but you don't want to politicize it. And these Democrats, you got to watch them. Because they on. always want to expand government, make it bigger, cost more money. Da -da 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 -da. Keep and it's like, no, we don't need no more government. We need less government. And we have very cut the budget. Very little and then time. let's, let's talk about doing some things that don't cost no money all the time. Jesus thank you, Christ. thank you. Uh, Jamie, you're up next. Should we elect the sheriff of Denver? Well, when you talk to the deputies, they, they would like an, an elected sheriff. And so I think that's something that we need to move forward on exploring. That's obviously a charter change. It, it requires the voters to get involved. But I think that's something that needs to be put up for, uh, for the voters to decide on. Okay. Michael, should the citizens of Denver elect the next sheriff? <laughs> you know, let me just say this. I'm the only one up here who's actually conducted a national search for a sheriff. And one of the difficulties of this position is that it's different than any sheriffs around the country. We're the only one in the Colorado uh, county there where the sheriff doesn't do any patrol. Um, they, they, they don't arrest people. They actually manage our jails and our courts. And so it's a very difficult position. We had a lot of candidates who applied for the job and were surprised that it is not uh, a direct law enforcement role uh, in the city and county of Denver. So it's a difficult call. I'm, you know, I'm not sure I'm one way or the other at this point, but I think people need to understand what the role of sheriff is in the county of Denver. Kaylin, should we let the next sheriff? Yeah, I think if we're going to build the trust between the community and the police department, we have to elect somebody that the community feels comfortable with, that the community trusts, and that the community uh, re thinks represents that community in order to build that trust and see more safety. Penn, what do you think? Should we let the next Denver sheriff? Well, Dominic, as you know, and as David and I have argued on Colorado Inside Out over the years, Colorado has a number of communities where the sheriff is elected, and those communities have had similar and other problems with elected sheriffs mm -hmm. that Denver has had with appointed sheriffs. So election versus not electing is not the solution. As mayor, I'll entertain the conversation with the broader community, with the, detect, with the um, officers in the department, but at the end of the day, if you want a person who's responsive to the community, I think the best way to get that now is to continue this current system where the mayor appoints the sheriff, but you have to have the right mayor who's working with the community, working with the department to make sure the person you select is responsive to the needs of the community and mindful of what the role actually is. Well, as we have for that little segue, we are to our closing statements. We've asked each of our candidates to give a 30-second closing statement. 30. <laughs> and uh, we've also drew, drew numbers before the debate started to figure out the order, so it would be fair. Uh, Jamie, you're up first for your 30-second closing statement. Thank you. For me, this election is really focused on creating a livable Denver. It's the quality of life conversation that people are talking about out in the neighborhoods, and I've visited almost all 78 of them now. And so we understand that growth has happened and will continue to happen, and that's that's really the focus is how does growth happen going forward? How do we invest in those quality of life pieces that make day-to-day -day better, easier for the people in our communities? So I would love to be the next mayor of Denver, and I would love to focus on a very livable Denver uh, with the support of the Denver voters. Thank you, Jamie. Penn, you're up next for your 30-second closing statement. 
Well, thank you all for joining us. My name is Penfield Tate. I'm asking for your vote to be the next mayor of Denver. As I've traveled around the city and walked through the different neighborhoods, it's been made clear to me that the people of this city want change and they want new leadership. They want leadership that is accessible, that communicates with them and works with them as we plan the future of the city. They want leadership that is ethical, where they can trust that people will act in their best interest, and they want leadership that is transparent, where they don't have to file a formal request for information to find out what government is doing. They want to make sure that growth is done with and for them, not to them. They want obtainable housing. They want the homeless lifted off the streets, and they want the mess on the roads cleaned up. And I'm the, the person with the demonstrated leadership and experience that can do that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Penn. Kaylin, you're up next for your 30-second closing statement. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Uh, my name is Kaylin Rose Heffernan, born and raised in this town uh, as an artist, as an educator, as an organizer, very close with a lot of nonprofit organizations. Uh, I think I most reflect the people that have been politicized, that have been uh, talked about on these stages. Uh, my whole platform is providing access. I'd like to see Denver the most accessible city in the world. And as an artist, it's our job to creatively reimagine the future that we want to live in. Thank you, Kaylin. Michael, your 30-second closing statement, please. People of Denver, thank you for the honor of being your mayor. Together, we've built a very successful, prosperous, and nationally and globally leading city. Today, I'll tell you that um, this is a position I'd rather address the challenges from, not the one that we inherited in 2011. Today, we live in a prosperous city which gives us the opportunity to address the issues and challenges of housing, mobility, and neighborhood sustainability. I will take this position to address those issues any day, as opposed to being a mayor of a city that's not desirable, a city that does not have the resources to address these issues. We're not done with the work we started eight years ago. I'm honored to be your mayor. I'd be honored to be your mayor going forward for the final four years as a third-term mayor, if I can have your vote. Thank you. Lisa, you're up next for your 30-second closing statement. Denver voters, we are on the cusp of a new era of leadership, and I'm very excited. In about 20 days, you'll be casting your ballot or less when you see this. And, um, or, you know, so I'm really excited that, one, we'll elect our first woman mayor of Denver. I'm also excited that we're not going to the past. We were going forward uh, and that we're not going to have three terms of the same mayor. It's time for a new vision. It's time for more opportunities for more people. And it's time that everybody prospers in Denver, not just the wealthiest. So voting for me is a vote for those who have been left behind, those who want to prosper in Denver but have not been heard, and that we give a seat at the table for everyone who wants it, not just those who are closest to the mayor. Thank you, Lisa. Seiko, you're a finale. 30 seconds. They're going to shut the lights off on us. I know. Hey, listen. listen okay. Do this right here. Okay. Put you your hand it. up five. You know what I'm saying? I, that means I got five seconds to go and we'll close it. Right, I'm going to help you out. Okay. All right. First of all, uh, I want to thank everybody here for coming, uh, especially Michael, because uh, uh, this one ain't been easy, bro. It ain't been easy. And uh, if it hadn't been for you doing what you do, we wouldn't have nothing to talk about. All right. That's So... Thank you for taking the lick and keep on ticking. There's a resilience there. That's what the Thunderbolts do. Now, I will be the first mayor who was pulled that got elected. So everybody might as well quit because I told everybody here I'm a, I got a position for you in my administration because it takes teamwork to make the dream work. And I especially need Michael on the team so he can tell me how he messed this up so we can do this and fix this real quick because he knows what happened. 
They're going to shut the lights off on us. Thank you, Satan. Shut the light off. Man. It's hot anyway. Jesus <laughs> Christ. You got some air conditioning up in there? Thank you very much for uh, tuning in, for joining us for this mayoral debate. I want to thank all of our candidates for joining us. Lisa Calderon, <laughs> St- Stephen Seku Evans, Jamie Gillis, Michael Hancock, Kaylin Rose Heffernan, and Penfield Tate. Be sure to tune in next Friday night at 9 o'clock, and we take a look at the candidates running for city council in District 10 and the at-large seats. For everybody here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.